if you can continue to create the experience and if the retailer can adapt to the changing taste of the consumer, I think we'll be fine. But there are certain things that you can't do online that you can do in person. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, got two questions for you. And this is for my fix and flippers out there. One, are your financing costs eating away your bottom line? And two, are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by reducing your loan payments to the bank or private lender? Of course you are, right? You're always looking to maximize the potential of your deal. So here's a solution. We got a solution for you through the crowdfunding platform, Patch of Land. If you're a loyal best ever listener, you know Patch of Land. They've been on the show many times. They've sponsored the show many times. They're back for more because they love you. They want to help you out. They want to add value to your life. And here's how they're going to do it. They have a solution to your financing issue of financing costs eating away from the bottom line, and they want to help you reduce your loan payment to the bank. So here we go. Patch of Land offers a fix and flip loan program that only charges interest on the funds that have been dispersed as opposed to the traditional model of lenders charging interest on the whole loan amount at the beginning. You save a lot of money this way, and it can be misleading when you get your terms quoted to you by the lender at a particular rate if they charge all the interest up front versus upon distributions. Patch of Land's got a document that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper to educate yourself on questions you should ask the lender. Regardless if you go with Patch of Land, you've got to get this document to educate yourself on the questions to ask your lender to make sure you're getting the best financing terms. The document's at patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. That's patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Patch of Land, they can close in as little as seven days and they can help you through this program save thousands of dollars on your deals, make more money, and uh, have a better business and grow your fix and flip business. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And with us today, Carl Banks. How you doing, Carl? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure and nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Carl. He is a two-time Super Bowl champion with the New York Giants. Yes. He is a New York Giants legend. He's on the NFL's 1980s All-Decade team. And he is a Spartan from Michigan State University. He's a Michigan State University Hall of Famer. You're from Flint, Michigan, right? Correct. I was born in Flint, Michigan. Really? In fact, in about a month, I'm going to be in Flint visiting my grandmother, who is 102 years old. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. She's still living in the same house that she's lived in for (laughs) 70 years. Boy, I know there are some stories she can tell. Oh, boy. Yes, yes, yes. So, Carl, he... Not only from the football background, we'll put that aside for a second. Holy cow, Carl has been busy post-football career. He founded G3 Sports, and G3 Sports is one of the largest licensed sports apparel companies in the world that produces for the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL. They're the number one outerwear sports licensing company, 
And we're going to talk about that as well as some other entrepreneurial endeavors. He also still travels with the New York Giants as an on-air broadcast analyst and serves as a mentor for the team. So here's my first question for you, my friend. Well, first off, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You were a grave digger in high school. How'd you get into that? Yes. Well, there's a few cemeteries in Flint, Michigan. Grace Long Cemetery was the one that chose me, I guess. There was a really great, I call him a community leader. His name was Peter Budarakis. And he tried to make sure that all the young athletes around town just kind of stayed out of trouble. And he would offer us summer jobs. And he was at one of my games, and it was probably my junior year going into the summer. It was summer league basketball. And he said he had a job for me. And I came, and he gave me a shovel, pointed me in the direction to go. But there were a lot of us out there. But it was so interesting because the whole grave digging thing, but the people that you work with, I think it was kind of a method to his madness because he had us working with people that were just out of incarceration. So people that were trying to get their lives back together. So you're sitting there and you're digging graves and you're having these long conversations with people that are giving you really great life advice. Because people are saying, you don't want to do these types of things. You don't want to be with these types of people. This is what got me in trouble. And some of these young men, my father was a corrections officer. So he knew some of them, right? So it was really interesting, but it was a great character building experience so much so that I continued to do it throughout college. And it was great. And then Peter was just awesome because he would come, he would drive through, pick me up, take me to lunch. And we'd go on these, have these life conversations and how to deal with people and building people skills. So it was just awesome, that whole experience. And I always joke, When people ask me about it, I said, people are dying to get in there. (laughs) Well, with some of the conversations you had with the people who are just getting out of jail or prison, do you remember any particular piece of advice that really resonated with you? Flint was a very small community. But I'll say the one thing that I never forgot, I don't know if it was Peter that told me or one of the ex-convicts, So your eyes remember what your ears forget, meaning always stay alert, always be observant of people and your surroundings. How have you applied that to your life? It's so interesting because in business, just like in sports, what I call phatic communication or nonverbal communication, you can read a lot from a person just by observing them. And sometimes you got to be less of a talker in business and more of a listener and more of an observer. And in sports, because I played on some very good teams, I was able to, when I knew I could impose my will on someone, watch their behavior. I could tell when someone gave up. I could tell their level of determination. The harder you played, the more tips they would give you. If a guy had to block you, you could tell the ball was coming to my side of the field because the guy would be a little more nervous than he would if he didn't have to block me. Sometimes you find that in business, people are over talkers sometimes. Or if you ask a question and you watch behavior, you can learn a lot about people. So that's why I I observe and I listen. Mm. I love that. And that's incredibly helpful for us as entrepreneurs. You mentioned that 
and this will be the last grave digging question I have for you, but it's, it's really fascinating. You mentioned you continued it when you were at Michigan State. Did you just find a new cemetery to go dig in, or did you go back to Flint and dig at the same place? I stayed at Graceland Cemetery. Okay. And I did everything, too. It was grave digging, landscaping, end up working backhoes and tractors. It was everything, but you had to find lost grave locations. You relocated people to families, their family plots. It was all kinds of stuff. And one of the weirdest things was when you had to relocate someone that's been buried for a very, very long time, a family or the kids bought a plot and they want everybody together and you got to go dig someone up. And once you dig it, you can only go so far then you have to go by hand and scoop out dirt. And like, there's water and all kinds. It's just like the creepiest thing. Yes, but it, it was is. fun. It was, <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Believe it or not, it was fun. Were there any self-talks later in life, whether in the NFL or post-NFL, doing the successful endeavors that you're doing, where you think, you know what, I hand dug out an existing grave I can do X, Y, Z? Probably more often than you can imagine. (laughs) Because I think it also taught hard work. I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty and dig in, literally, pun intended. But there are times where you got a decision to make or you're training. When I was in sports, yeah, I would say I'm doing pretty good for myself. I've been around death. I can do just about anything. Let's talk about a tough decision as an entrepreneur that you've had to make. Can you tell us what that was and just the thought process that you had to go along with it? I would say in the late 90s, the licensing landscape changed and Reebok became a major licensee for all categories in the NFL. They just pretty much bought the entire business. So I was a niche business at that time. I was strictly out aware. And I was informed by the NFL that all of my major retail rights were taken away and going to be granted to Reebok. Now, I knew Reebok did not have the out aware core competencies that we had. Mm-hmm. And yet, I lost the business to them because they were the highest bidder. And obviously, Outerwear for someone who's making jerseys, shirts, and hats. Outerwear is a throw-in, but it's a very important category at retail. So I spent probably two or three meetings, myself and Morris Goldfarb, the CEO of G3. We went to Boston. We sat with their executives, Paul Fireman, and we said, okay, so if you guys are going to do outerwear, we do it better. Why don't you sub-license us to do it? Said no. So ultimately, their goal was to put us out of business, Mm -hmm. right? So my decision that I had to make at that moment was, was I going to allow this company who was much bigger than me in the sports area to put us out of business or to strategically adjust? Because Morris Goldfarb, we sat together and he says, look, I may have to shut the division down because I don't know where we're going to get this business from. And I would say the number one thing that kicked in for me, and I basically said to myself while I was in the meeting with him, I said to myself, what would Belichick and Parcells do? Because they're the masters 
at knowing what you are this year. And I've written both of them letters thanking them for being kind of a blueprint for how I approach business from year to year, from week to week. So what I did was a little bit of deductive reasoning. I knew that Reebok did not make outerwear and they didn't do it proficiently. So even if they did, it would be one or two pieces. So what I said I would do is adjust the business. And I just looked at the CEO and said, we'll be okay. Because I knew if they didn't service the customer, it was going to be a problem with the leagues because the customer is going to say they're not getting out of where in G3 sports was getting me everything I wanted. And if you're talking about a 20 or $30 million business at the time, that's a lot. Yep. And you're taking product out of the market. So they bought the rights, they warehoused them. So I said to my CEO, we're going to be okay. But in the interim, I still had to find business, right? So what I ended up doing where they took the major retailers away from my portfolio, there were a ton of independent guys, local market guys, team pro shops, right? So my ability to go out and go find the local market guys to buy my outerwear was the greatest thing I could have ever done because I expanded my business in preparation for Mm -hmm. the rights to come back because all of these mom and pops got the product and they were the only ones to have outerwear for a couple of years. Now, the big retailers were complaining to the NFL. It's like, I can't even get outerwear when all of these other mom and pops have outerwear. I'm saying, go talk to Reebok. We have nothing to do with it. So eventually, I think about 18 months into the deal, we probably lost, I would say, 10% of our business. So we had to hustle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we found a different way. And that was kind of, if I had to look at the lessons I learned from Parcells and Belichick, those are the things. Each week, each year, it's what are we? What do we have available to us? Now let's find a way to be successful with what we have because the old way doesn't work given the tools we have available to us. So I immediately went into that. And that's something that business people didn't experience. It takes a series of meetings. And the first thing you think to do is cut, 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 slash, slash, slash. And I'm thinking, no, let's grow. Here's an opportunity Mm -hmm. because these were guys that weren't getting my product that wanted it. Now I can give it to them exclusively and make the other guys want the product as a result of that. So they were thriving. My business was down, like I said, about five, maybe 10%, which wasn't bad given I just watched $30 million worth of business go to someone else and I had to refigure it out. But I was able to cultivate a new customer base and Reebok and the leagues, all of them, the NBA and the NFL, We're hearing it from the major retailers. You can't do this. You can't keep this. And Reebok could not make the product at the level we could. And they were offering one jacket that wasn't very good. And I got into the business being a niche player in outerwear because I was able to make jackets at a level where they're presenting 10 t-shirts. I would go to JCPenney's and present 20 jackets as if they were t-shirts. I was able to give each customer their own jacket And that's how I got into business with NFL. But I basically went back to my roots. So when the big players started to call the NFL and 
say to them, you can't not keep this product out of the market. Reebok had to either make the product or surrender the rights. And we ended up getting the rights back in 18 months. And wow. what ended up happening, I grew a business and then I got the $30 million in business back. So it doubled my business just like that in 18 months. Mm. Knowing that you went through that process and the results from the process, would you ever trick yourself into thinking that something like that is about to happen again? It is. Okay. It is. Will you elaborate? It's a, called, it's a thing called Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon's great, but they are squeezing brick and mortar. So yeah, it's happening. We're making some adjustments and the experience is very important. If you want to be relevant beyond online purchasing, you've got to create an experience. You've got to create stories that work that can't be articulated by looking at a computer screen. So we've been able to do that. And we do business with Amazon. We do business with Fanatics. Both are good partners, but their stated goal is to take over the world. And as long as we're part of that, that's fine. But we have other partners that we want to keep in our mix as well that are brick and mortar. And the only way you're going to do that is people went to brick and mortar for the experience. If you're buying a coat, if you're buying your favorite team hat, jersey, or shoes, it wasn't grab and go. That's what online is right now. There's no experiential component. I just read about the artificial intelligence of the Echo and Alexa, where they're going to be beaming and looking at your body and seeing what you wear and how to do that. But that's just not the same. So if you continue to create the experience and if the retailer can adapt to the changing taste of the consumer, I think we'll be fine. But there are certain things that you can't do online that you can do in person. And also, a lot of these guys have to buy brands in order to stay relevant because they don't want to make product. They want to sell products. So they have to buy other brands to sell the product. And sometimes it's just like they bought Whole Foods because they know that people like to feel their vegetables. They like to look at the fish before they buy it. They can't buy that online. So it's kind of proof that everything can't be sold online. You've got to have some level of experience. Mm -hmm. On the entrepreneurial note, and really just the hustle and the foresight note, I was reading a story about you and it mentioned that you convinced a radio station to allow you to host a post-game show while you were playing for the Giants. So you would shower after the game and then go talk about the game immediately after on your show. And most of your teammates, I imagine, were not doing that. They were probably none. doing... There was no okay, one none. doing that at the time. <laughs> there was no one in the league doing no what I was doing at the time. And it became kind of the format for what we see in post-game shows now, player-hosted shows, player reports. That was all a result of what I did. And I had great help because, again, when you talk about being proactive and opportunistic and kind of having that grind, I got Coca-Cola to be a sponsor of it. But how it happened, I was speaking, um, trying to think where it was. It was in South Jersey, like Exit 9. And I was speaking at a kid's banquet. And the father came up to me. His name was Wayne Vogel. And he was from Coca-Cola. So we struck up a conversation. I said, I got this idea. 
I want to do a post-game show. Would Coca-Cola be interested? Long story short, he took me to meet Jim Patton, his boss. And Patton had this idea too. They had to try to sell a two-liter bottle of Diet Coke. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time they were launching that. So I was a big guy. It worked for them because I became kind of their poster guy for this two-liter bottle of Coke, and which kicked off an entire campaign around the entire country with the NFL. And then Pepsi signed Shaq as a result of that. (laughs) Shaq said thank you, by the way. Yeah. So I got Coca-Cola to say, okay, we will be a sponsor. So I walked into the radio station. And by the way, this is the same way I operate now with my radio show here in New York on WFAN and CBS radio. But I had Coca-Cola in hand, became the Coca-Cola Carl Banks Report and the Coca-Cola Carl Banks postgame show. So I was like in radio while I was working. No players were doing any radio shows during the season and certainly wasn't doing postgame shows. And that's kind of what laid the groundwork for me to be a broadcaster. But I love the philosophy of having sponsor in hand and being able to basically barter your airtime. But it's great, especially if you're good. And I think I'm pretty good at what I do. But here I have a post-game show. I do a Monday and a Friday show here on WFAN. And my main sponsor is Kia. And Kia wasn't in sports. I'm not going to say I'm solely responsible for putting Kia in sports. But I was at Home Shopping Network and I needed to rent a car. And they gave me what I thought was a Toyota Land Cruiser. And I find out it's a Kia, right? I'm like, this is great. And I was ranting and raving. So I got back to the radio station and I said, can someone call someone at Kia? And I recorded this testimonial and they sent it to them. And we've had a relationship for like seven years now. Wow. But then Kia's now in NBA, they're in NFL, and they're a big part of sports now. LeBron James is a big spokesperson for them. But the experience and being proactive in things that you like is really cool. Mm. I know I didn't answer the question, but no, I, just, you did. No, you did. I just wanted to share the experience. I love that because I have a follow-up question on that. You mentioned it was called the Coca-Cola Carl Banks Report. Yeah. No one else was doing it. Correct. I'm going to make some assumptions now. I am assuming that your teammates were like, dude, <laughs> you're doing what after the games? And when you made a mistake in the game... Would the coaches and or players be like, well, Carl, if you weren't doing all this extra stuff, then it's you so would have more time to focus on um, the game. And what, We had what a little do. bit of that. I got my chops busted a little bit, but that's even more pressure to be good. And again, I was on some really good teams. So there was always this element of accountability. We always had to be accountable to each other. So effort was important. and. If I made a few bad plays in the game, I had to fess up to it. That was the way our team was built in the way each component that Bill Parcells built our defense and Belichick ran it. But if something happened, we pretty much knew whose fault it was because that's just the way we were set up. We were pieces that worked together. So if a pass play happened or if a run play happened, you couldn't come off to the sideline and tell your teammates, Well, I did my job, but something freakish happened. No, we knew. Everybody knew. And so if I screwed up, I had to fess up right there, which made it, I guess, even more authentic for me. 
in a post game show because I had to go on air. I didn't have a 24 hour rule. I had to go on and fess up right on air. Hey, look, they scored a touchdown because they ran on the outside by me and I didn't do my job. And I think that's what makes me such an honest broadcaster to this day is that I can actually look at something and say whose fault it was without making it personal because I had to do it myself. Mm -hmm. You are more so proactive and opportunistic than most people. You're digging graves, doing a job in high school that most people wouldn't want to do for their whole life, let alone in high school. And you made the NFL, excelled. While in the NFL, you took on another job that evolved into other stuff. And now post-NFL, you're doing really well with your company. What would your advice be to people who don't naturally have your level of proactiveness in their nature? I would just say be curious. Developing people skills, believe it or not, it started for me while working in the cemetery because I was around different types of people and I had to ask questions. I was asked questions and I had to learn certain things. So I would say everyone who is not proactive or they don't think opportunistically, I'd say be curious, always be intellectually curious, want to learn something about something or about somebody and that one question will lead to the next answer, to the next question, and then that's growth. And then you want to know something else about something because that's how it really starts. You got to develop some level of communication skills. You don't have to be a great orator. You just have to be curious. You got to be curious and want to have interest in people. And I'm probably, when I'm not around people, the most introverted person ever. I enjoy doing nothing better than anybody. But when it's time to have that conversation or to follow up on something I was reading, I'm all in. I want to learn as much as possible. Based on your experience as an entrepreneur, what is your best advice ever for other entrepreneurs? <laughs> as painful as it can be, do not be afraid to fail. Because entrepreneurism is about exploring every idea you have. That's what an entrepreneur is. It's, it's about blazing a trail. It's about breaking new ground. It's about having a better idea. That's what an entrepreneur is. He finds either a better way to do it or he has a better idea or he has a unique idea. Sometimes you find out that your idea is not unique and you either abandon that idea and go to the next one, or you find a better way to make your idea even more innovative. But it can be painful. Even when you're successful, your one or two ideas for expansion could fall flat on its face, and that's painful. But you've got to be able to say, I'm not afraid because i got many more ideas to come, so I'm just going to keep coming at you. Mm-hmm. Well, let's stick with the painful theme. What is a painful flop business-wise that you've been responsible <laughs> for accomplishing? Well, this is just recently. I had an idea that I was trying to work a licensing deal with Classic Media. And they have just the greatest library of cartoons from Rocky and Bullwinkle to Richie Rich. They had this, this incredible catalog. 
And I thought I would be able to take those images and really create some fun stuff on apparel because we've seen it. Junk food has done it with vintage from Coca-Cola to 7-Up, whatever it is, right? And I thought the time was right in the market. I invested a lot, hired a lot of people. We created some incredible product and nobody wanted Nobody understood it. No one wanted it. And it's unfortunate because I still have some great designs that eventually, and I've been ahead. That's how I also look at it too. Sometimes I'm ahead of the curve in some of my ideas, but that was very painful. It was very expensive failure. Very, very expensive because you get licensing rights and they gave me everything. I gave a great presentation. I built great product. I even had product in the warehouse and just no one wanted it. And that was interesting because I thought the timing was perfect for it. It happens. It happens. But I still have great product. And I know at some point, if I have to revisit it with classic media, I'll be okay. I think they'll be ready for it. If presented a similar type of opportunity, or if you have a similar type of idea, how would you approach it differently knowing what you know now? I don't think I would approach it any differently. There's no way to test that before sinking in a bunch of money. Sure. You have to spend money to build it, Mm -hmm. right? But you do your market research. You see what's trending. You see where fashion's leading and you say, okay, this fits and it didn't, but that's okay because it's about instinct. Entrepreneurs have to have instinct. You can't be numb. If you feel it, it feels good and you feel great about the research that you've done, you feel great about the way, the integrity of what you're building, you go for it. I had the same instincts on the starter brand that's extremely successful for me right now. I wore it when I played. I was a spokesperson for it. I was building a jacket program and I wanted to get the starter label on it because we were recreating the scene from coming to America with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, Eddie had a Mets on and Arsenio had the Jets on and they had all the buttons and everything on it. And I said, I want to do this, but I want it authenticated. And I was able to reach out to the folks at Iconics, the IP holder, and ask for permission to do it. And I said, you know what? I think it's time to bring this entire movement back. So we worked together with Iconics. I got the license for the brand and it has been on fire. Instincts felt good. I built it the right way. I made sure that the integrity of the product was as authentic as it used to be. And I knew there was a generation of millennials and even people that are of my age group or a little younger that had an emotional connection with the brand. This was a brand that resonated even before Nike started to enter into sports. So there's heritage. These are the guys that created what we know is sports fashion, as sideline apparel. These are the guys that were innovators. They created that. So I brought it back and it is on fire right now. And, and very excited and very glad I trusted that instinct as well. Oh, yeah. You've got the pullover starter jackets? That's the breakaway. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. I do have a place in my heart for that. And I think I will be getting one after our phone. After, after our yeah, you should break the old one out. But yeah, like starter.com. But yeah. we do a great job. But the number one thing I wanted to do when I got permission to do it from the NFL, and then I went to Iconics and they granted me the rights to the license, 
the first thing I wanted to do was find out where the product was made mm-hmm. in the old jackets. So I looked in the old jackets to see what country of origin they were made in. And then we tracked down. And I have three people on my staff that actually worked for Starter wow. during that period. So they knew some people and we tracked down the original factory. And we're still working with that factory to make sure that we have some level of authenticity to it. That's incredible. And how about this? And this is something for entrepreneurs to know about too. I also went to the vintage dealers because those guys are so true to the essence of a product because they sell it. Like I became really good friends with, there's a guy here in New York. He has a vintage store called Mr. Throwback and he specializes in starter jackets. So I went to him to make sure I had all the details right. And if there's a detail off, he talked to me about it and we got it right. So to also bring an outside expert point of view into what your thought, you're not surrendering your thought process. You're just perfecting it. Mm-hmm. The final question, actually, I have two questions. This is the penultimate question. How do you identify the people to be on your team as advisors? Because I'm sure through your connections throughout the years, you've got a rather large Rolodex. So really the challenge is identifying who should really closely associate yourself to. Well, you find out what people's core competencies are. It could be people that you admire for what they accomplish. And you start to pick their brain. You have conversations. Again, Like I say, your eyes remember what your ears forget. So if you're very observant and you see how people do things, you learn about them and you say, well, maybe that can apply to what I do. And the same principle applies when I hire someone. I still, to this day, I didn't think I was that tough, but my current men's activewear designer almost sent her home in tears because I kept making her do projects and I kept challenging her because I lost a very good designer. And I was really in a good space in terms of where my product, how it looked and where it looked sold at retail. And I kind of had carved out a position and I didn't want to lose ground to my competition. And I was fond of the designer I lost. So the next person in, she's not a kid, she's a young lady, but her mother was in and she's like, mommy, would you tell him how hard I took it? I'm like, I didn't think I was that tough, but I just wanted to know that you were good enough and that we're going to have great product. I could not say more great things about her to this day because she is just incredible. And she mm-hmm. actually took our active wear to a whole nother level. Wow. As a business owner and entrepreneur, it's incredible what you've accomplished. And I'll give my summary here in a second. But before I do, what, if anything, would you like to mention that we haven't talked about? Well, I would say you got to have a work-life balance. I think people that are so driven, and I've been there before, they don't have a life. I think health is important. I think you have to do something you like outside of the things you want to create, like work. Because entrepreneurs often multitask on different ideas, but I think a healthy mind and body is important as well. And I think you need to have balance in that. And if you're an entrepreneur with a family, You definitely need work-life balance there because the sober reality is your failure sometimes can bleed into your personal life and you don't want that. You want to have a balance where people are rooting for you. You want to create cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you fail, you don't want to 
come home and be looked at as a failure. You want everybody bought in. You want to have a life where everybody's proud of every effort that you have so that they're your cheerleaders. And they're like, okay, what do we got to do next? If this one didn't work, we're going to do the next thing, you know? Mm -hmm. With your company, how can the best ever listeners check out the products that you license? Where can we go to look at that? Well, we have a website, g3.com. But starter.com is another place. Fanatics, if you just go into fanatics.com and you type in any of our brands, meaning Starter, G3 for Her, G3 by Carl Banks, you'll see all of our products. I do hands high for Jimmy Fallon. I'm uh, partners with Alyssa Milano, who's the number one fashion lady sports apparel brand touched by Alyssa Milano. So she has literally changed the game. We met probably 10 years ago at a trade show. And she said she wanted to do women's apparel that didn't look like men's product. That was what she said, shrink and pinked. So she had an idea, talk about an entrepreneur. She says, this is what I want it to look like. Give me a designer, give me a staff. And away she went. And now I think she is the leader in high-end fashion for women's sports apparel. Wow. I will include those links in the show notes page. And Carl, Lastly, as someone who I believe your company works with investors, right? I see an investor relations. Yeah, our corporate company, G3 Apparel, is a publicly traded company. That's correct. Got it. And I guess my last question is, what was the decision-making process to make it a public company versus keeping it private? Well, I was not part of that process. Morris Goldfarb and his father and his brother are the ones who took the company public. I joined the company probably two years into that process, they had just gone public. So what I brought was a whole different mindset because they weren't even in the licensing business at that time. They had just become out of wear company of the year for some retailer on a bomber jacket. And I joined the company with the sports licenses, which became a model for how the company would operate because the margins were so much better. Now you're dealing in brands instead of commodities. So now if you look at the G3 portfolio outside of my sports business, you'll see names like Calvin Klein, Carl Lagerfeld, Andrew Mark, Kenneth Cole, Kohan, Levi's, DH Bass, all brands that we corporately license or own outright. We own Donna Karen or DKNY. We own DKNY now. We own GH Bass. We own Carl Lagerfeld. So we have brands now so that we can remain important at the retail level and just not a commodity black or brown dress or suit or jacket. Well, Carl, thank you for being on the show and sharing life lessons along the way. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, this this is incredible. Very insightful. And I'm very grateful that we were able to catch up and and learn more about your, your approach. I mean, from very beginning or from the beginning of when we started our conversation, where you talked about lessons learned from your summer job digging graves to just your overall approach where you you can lead a lot from people by observing them. Sometimes you want to be less of a talker and more of an observer and how you've applied that towards business is sometimes people talk too much and they're over talkers (laughs) and perhaps there's, there's something that is lurking just beneath the surface there, whether they're insecure or hiding something or whatever. And then life challenges or business challenges, you had Reebok come in and 
took away basically a $30 million account, had to hustle, went after the private companies, and lost only 5-10%, but then you got it back 18 months later. Plus, you got all these private companies, so you grew tremendously through that experience and the whole thought process, what would Belichick or Parcells do? And it's funny, I had a challenge in my business when I was starting out, and I thought, what would a billionaire do? So it's still having that thought process that someone else at a higher level at the time of where you're at would be doing. And then being proactive and opportunistic. Holy cow, playing a football game, then doing the radio show when no one else is doing it, then bringing on sponsors. And if we don't have that level of ambition and proactiveness that you naturally have, then your advice is to be curious, ask questions and learn. From learning, you will grow, and then that leads to more questions, and naturally there's more growth. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, Carl. We'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got the document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper. They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan, and conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. The Corporate Investor Podcast is geared towards successful corporate employees with high income jobs looking to create a second stream of income. You'll hear from successful real estate investors on the show as they describe how they got started investing while working their full-time corporate job. Listen and subscribe at thecorporateinvestor.com. That's thecorporateinvestor.com.